Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, Candeo. My name is Jordan, uh, one of the pastors on staff here. And I want to start off this morning uh, sharing with you one of the more unique things that's happened to me in my lifetime. Um, I was in the middle of one of my physical therapy rotations and was staying with a family in Chicago. And long story short, this family had a connection with Alfonso Ribeiro, which if you don't know who that is, he played at Carlton in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which is one of my favorite shows growing up. And again, I can't get all into all the details, but I, one of the days I was there, I ended up in a living room with Alfonso for about three hours, just having a conversation. I mean, he's, he started sharing stories uh, of him and Will Smith and things he's interested in and all these things. And if you were to ask me, Jordan, did you, did, did you talk to him much? Did you ask him a lot of questions? <laughs> I would say no. I was trying to play it cool because the whole time in my head, I was thinking, don't call him Carlton. And, and like, <laughs> don't ask him to do the Carlton dance. Like that's, that was all I could be, that's all I could think about. But it was really interesting, you know, kind of like getting to see behind the curtain of someone kind of that, that Hollywood star caliber to hear what do, what do they talk about? What are they interested in? What do, what do they care about? This morning, similarly, we're going to get a peek behind the curtain and we're going to see when Jesus talks to his father, what does he talk about? What does he care about? What is he interested in? We're going to answer that this morning. Uh, And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 17. We're going to read, uh, or it was just read over you, what's called the high priestly prayer. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the scriptures. And in this, he just got done talking to his disciples, and now he's talking to his father. And this prayer is typically broken up into three chunks. Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all believers. We're going to hit those first two chunks today in these first 19 verses, um, and and then hit that third chunk next week. Uh, But as he starts, Jesus says this phrase, the hour has come. And if you've been tracking with us throughout the book of John, that phrase should sound familiar. Actually, when you go all the way back to John chapter 2, in the very first sign and miracle of Jesus, uh, we see water turned into wine. And and Jesus' mom asks him, you know, hey, would you essentially turn this water into wine? And what he does is he turns to his mom and he says, my hour has not yet come. And so we've heard that before, and we kind of hear it throughout John, but now Jesus is saying his hour has come. Well, what does Jesus mean? What's he talking about? Hour for what? Well, ultimately, it's his hour to be glorified. And that is the first thing that Jesus is going to pray about in this prayer, is Jesus is going to pray for his glory. So go back to to verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. A couple things to point out here uh, in, that, in that verse. The Trinity delights in glorifying one another. The Father loves to glorify the Son. The Son loves to glorify the Father. Holy Spirit loves to glorify the Father and the Son. So they delight in glorifying in one another. But in this, I don't know if you caught that, but there is a claim of deity by Jesus even in that one verse. 
Because what Jesus says is he says, glorify your son. But if you read the Old Testament, you know that God gives glory to no one else. Go to Isaiah 42, 8. Here's one example. God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Only glory goes to God. So when Jesus asks the Father for himself to be glorified, he's claiming deity. But it's not only in this verse. You keep going. You go down to verse 4. It says, I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What's the work that, that Jesus was given to do? Well, ultimately, it was to live the perfect life which Jesus did, obeying all the commands of the Father in the Old Testament, living the perfect life, not sinning. Only God could do something like that. But then you keep going in verse five. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. That means, yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but the Son of God was not created in Bethlehem. Son of God was not created, period. Son of God is creator. He is eternal with the Father before the beginning. He is God. But we see here that Jesus set aside that eternal glory he had with his Father to come to this earth in the flesh. And in this prayer, he's given an account essentially of the work he's done, that, he, that he's done so far, what he's already done. And now he's also going to pray for what he's about to do. What's Jesus about to do? Keep reading verse two. So it says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Jesus is not only God, but states here that the father has given him authority over everything. And boy, that just collides with everything our culture has to say today, doesn't it? It just kind of collides with our flesh. We don't, we don't like being told what to do, but we're told here that Jesus has authority over all flesh. But what does Jesus do with that authority? Maybe you'd think, well, he's probably going to ruthlessly rule like a power-hungry king. It might be our knee-jerk reaction, but that's not Jesus. You go to the Last Supper with him and his disciples, and he doesn't grab a sword, rally the troops, and go and slaughter everybody that's wronged him. That's not what he does. He doesn't grab a sword. He grabs a towel and gets on his knees and he serves his disciples. And this is a bit of a side note, but I just want to say this. I think it's helpful to hear. True Christian authority in this life and in this world, in the church and in the home is likely upside down from what the world thinks. True Christian authority doesn't mean that you get to use your authority to abuse, hurt, and manipulate others. If that's you, if you got leadership under Christ and that's true of your life, you need to hear clearly this morning, you're dishonoring Christ and you need to repent. It's not what we're called to. Leadership under Jesus is the opposite. It's dying to yourself and serving others. The minute you begin to use your power to lord it over others is the minute you've disqualified yourself as a leader within the church. First Peter 5 makes that very clear. We have a group of uh, men who are now in the midst of our aspiring elders class. It's meeting on Tuesday mornings and they're learning very clearly the role of an elder. That the authority that the elders are given is not used to lord over others. It's used for us to die to ourselves and to serve our church. Christian leadership is not grabbing a sword, it's grabbing a towel. And Jesus gives an example for all Christians to follow. 
Jesus was given all authority, but not only did he lay down his pride to serve his disciples, he also laid down his life to save his disciples. That is what Jesus is about to do. That is the hour he's talking about. Jesus was about to be glorified as king, but his glory would come as he hung his bloody body on that cross. His glory, this king's glory came through his shame. His glory was on display as he suffocated on a tree. Now you might ask the question, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would he do that? It's because Jesus knew that we as humans have an infection that's in our body that no vaccine or antibiotic is going to cure. And it's the infection of sin. And ever since Genesis 3 in the fall with Adam and Eve, sin is flowing through our veins. And Jesus knew and he knows that apart from him, what we deserve for our sin is the righteous wrath of a holy God. But what Jesus did is he went to the crosses. He took the wrath that we deserved in our place and then rose victoriously from the grave, which means that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus laid down his life so that you and I could have eternal life. At the cross, Jesus ensured the salvation of everyone the Father had given to him. You, you probably saw that in the language of the text. And this is actually referring back to what we've seen earlier in John. Check out John 6, 37. Jesus said this, everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. I think it's fair to ask, well, who are the ones given to Christ? Or maybe another way to ask that question is, how do I receive eternal life? Well, verse three tells us, go back to the text. It says, this is eternal life. I mean, God's word's just gonna tell us that they may know you the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ, that you would know the Father, that you would know the Son. And this was true of these disciples that Jesus is praying for. Go down to verse seven and eight. Let's skip down a bit. It says, now they know that everything you have given is from you because I've given them the words you gave me. They've received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. So these, these disciples accepted, it, accepted Jesus' teaching they knew that he is God and they believed. Jesus is making it clear that all who have believed and all who will believe will have eternal life. The whole purpose of the book of John is stated in John 23. The purpose of this book is so that you will believe. So let me ask this morning, do you believe? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins? If you have, I say, praise God that by his grace, he has saved you and secured your salvation on that cross. And if not, if you've not believed, I'll ask this morning, what would stop you? Would you let today be the day of salvation where you say, I'm gonna believe that Jesus is who he says he is and did what the Bible says he has done. Jesus was willing to lay down his life to be glorified before the father and created a path of eternal life for you and me, for all those who would believe. So this is the prayer, that the son would be glorified. But he prays for his glory, but then he, he turns and begins to pray for his disciples. Go to verse nine. I just wanna read the first four words here. I think this is powerful. I pray for them. 
This is a simple truth that I think is so incredibly powerful. Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for his friends. And it's not just like those disciples back then. If you keep going, verse 20, this is next week's text, says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their words. So Jesus is not only praying for these disciples, but for all disciples. And let me just say clearly this morning, Jesus didn't like pray back then and is done praying. Jesus continues to pray now for his believers, for his followers. That is powerful theology. Think about the implications that would have on your life if you believe that to be true of you. Listen to this quote by Robert Murray McShane. I think this is awesome. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. We should have boldness, Christian, because we have a high priest who is interceding for us right now. The good shepherd, he prays for his sheep. But the question this morning is when Jesus prays for his sheep, for his followers, what does he pray? What does he care about? Well, there's two things here that I want to point out. The first is he prays for their protection. Now, this might sound strange because we just got done with chapter 15 and 16. In chapter 15, Jesus promised that they would face persecutions in this world. And then 16, I mean, this last verse, you will have suffering in this world. And Jesus wasn't kidding. That was a promise fulfilled. The majority of these disciples, these 11, died a martyr's death. So when Jesus prays for their protection here, what is he praying for? Well, we need to be clear. He's not praying for their physical protection here. He's praying for their spiritual protection. And in two very clear ways. The first is in verse 11. He's going to pray for their unity. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. So this is extremely, extremely important. The unity of believers. But here's the deal. This is a pretty big part of next week's text, the unity of all believers. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to kick that one, kick that ball down the field a little bit. I'll let Cody pick that up and run with that next week. So just know that he prays for unity. But the second thing he prays for within spiritual protection is he's praying for protection from the evil one. Go to verse 15 with me. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, Jesus has been protecting his disciples, his whole earthly ministry. He says that in verse 12, as he's given an account to the father of his work done, he says, I've protected all the disciples minus the son of destruction, who is Judas. And the purpose of that was to fulfill scripture, specifically Psalm 41.9. But he's saying, I've protected them. But now as he leaves to the father, he prays that they would continue to be protected from the devil and the evils of this world. Now that word, world, is used, the Greek word is used 18 times within this entire passage. So it's important for us to tune into. But in general, what Jesus is talking about here is the, the fallen world that is hostile to God. And what he says in verse 16 is that these disciples are not of the world, just as, as Jesus is not of the world. So they're not of the world, but the world is the place where they are to do their work. They are very much in the world. So Jesus prays to the Father that they wouldn't be taken out of the world because they got work to do. And it's not easy work. And Jesus knows that likely these disciples would be tempted to bail. Because if you read throughout Scripture, 
There's a lot of godly people that face really hard things that were tempted to hit the eject button a bit. Let me give you one example. I'm going to go to the Old Testament. Give me give you a little context here. This is going to be in 1 Kings, prophet Elijah. Okay, so in 1 Kings 19, the, the background of this is Elijah has just gotten done doing battle with the prophets of Baal. Essentially, there was this test between them and Elijah and the one true God. And essentially, God sends down fire on a, on a wet altar and wins the battle. And all of these prophets are slaughtered. Well, Jezebel, leader at the time, finds out about it and commits to slaughtering Elijah himself. So that's like the context. So there's like a manhunt for Elijah right now. And so in chapter 19, verse 3, it says this, Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. He just gets done with this incredible miracle, this incredible thing that's happened, and he's like, I'm done. I, I'm out. I, I've got nothing left in the tank. Could you just like take me out of this life and take me home, Father? I, I'm done. Well, what does God do? Well, keep reading. In verse 5, it says, Then he lay down, slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, Get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then, on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. So, Elijah's ready to tap out, and what's God do? He, like, sends him a loaf of bread from Panera, drops it down with some hot stones and water, and he says, eat, drink. You know, he like gives him a cliff bar and trail mix. And, you know, he's like, go, keep going. The Lord doesn't take Elijah out of the fight. What's he do? He strengthens him and sends him back into the fight. And in John 17, Jesus knows his disciples are the plan A to get the mission of God to the people of this world. And he's praying that they don't tap out. And he's praying that they don't form this like holy huddle that never goes into the world. He's praying for their protection and their strength as he sends them into the fight. If you read John 14 through 17, Jesus is not praying that the hard things go away. He's praying that they would have strength through the hard things. So last week in the, in the text, Casey and I were talking about this. This very much caught her attention. In 1621, it says this, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So if you didn't know this, Casey and I uh, are expecting our first uh, baby boy due on Thanksgiving day. So probably eating some turkey in the hospital this year. Yes, thank you. Now, all, I'm going to deflect all of that clapping to Casey, who's doing all the work right now, and I'm along for the ride. But it's been fun. And we've had a, we recently had an uh, ultrasound, and in the middle, they do the 2D ultrasound. We asked them, like, hey, could you flip it over to that 3D ultrasound? And technology is wild, guys. And what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and show you my new favorite picture in the whole world. So... 
Isn't that awesome? So Casey, I mean, we're sitting there, and she, she literally, they had gotten multiple pictures, and then she's talking to our baby boy, and all of a sudden he smiles, and they snap that picture. It's crazy. So uh, the answer is yes, we do have a name picked out. The answer is no, you do not get to find out that privileged information. Uh, Grandma and Grandpa Perhoda don't even know yet, so I'd be in hot water if I told you guys. Casey actually yesterday, she's like, hey, don't screw up and accidentally say his name. So, okay, got it. But if you ask Casey today, you could ask her right after the service, how are you feeling going into the birthing of your son? She would say that she is pumped and very excited for baby boy to be here. But if you know my wife, she's also brutally honest. And she would say she is really nervous about labor and delivery. And it, it's a very unknown thing. And she's very aware that the curse of Genesis 3 is real. The curse on Eve. And so for you women, when you get to heaven, you want to have a conversation with Eve, you're probably going to have to grab a ticket and stand in line. A lot of people want to have a convo, I'm sure, with her. Um, but what's my prayer for my wife as she enters into labor and delivery? My prayer for Casey isn't that the hard thing wouldn't happen, that there would be no labor and delivery. What's my prayer? My prayer is that the Lord would strengthen my wife, give her courage and endurance in the midst of her labor and delivery. That's my prayer. And she knows and we know the joy that's coming on the other side. And in the same way, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And in verse 13, he knows that as they go through the hard things, their joy will be completed in him. So Christian, we stay in the fight. Until we die or until Jesus comes back, and no matter how difficult things may get, we stay in the fight. And things will get difficult because we do have an enemy. He is real. His name is the devil. And first Peter tells us he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for anyone to devour. And I'm telling you, he would love to create brokenness and disunity within this church family. But I'm also telling you, he would love to shipwreck your marriage. He would love for you to keep that sin secret, the sin that you've told nobody else yet, because he loves when sin grows in the dark like mold. And the devil would love for you to, to get your eyes fixed off of eternal things and consumed by temporary things. He loves all of that, anything that's going to shipwreck you and your faith and your love for Jesus. He's going to do it. But Jesus knows the schemes of his enemy. So I praise that his disciples would be protected and persevere through, through the hard things. So Jesus prays for spiritual protection, but he also prays for sanctification. All right, so let's go to verse 17 and 19. It says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. All right, two important words here, sanctify and truth. Let's hit them both. Sanctify means to be set apart, to be made more holy, to be made more like Jesus. And Jesus here is saying, I sanctify myself. Essentially, he set himself apart for the work of God's will and essentially to be sacrificed on that cross so that the disciples would have eternal life and that they also would be sanctified. Essentially, Jesus is praying for his disciples' holiness here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, you wanna know the will for, God's will for your life? God's will for your life is this, your sanctification, for you to be made more holy and more like Jesus Christ. So we're called to be sanctified, but we're called to be sanctified by the truth. 
What is truth? It's a pretty big question to ask this deep into the sermon. I don't have time to fully unpack it, but let me be very simple and clear. There is truth. There's one truth. And that truth is found in the word of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. You want to use fancy language? Truth is inscripturated and then it was incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that truth, this truth is the standard with, with which everything else in this world is tested and compared. If you want to talk about unity as a church, here's our unity. We unify around this because this is our plumb line. This truth is what grounds us as believers. This is what unifies us. And we are called to be sanctified by this truth. This truth should change you, should transform you. So Christian, are you committed to that path, to that change, that transformation? Do you live life with a posture of your opinions and your thoughts being the most important thing in life or ultimately your authority in life? Or when you come to God's word, do you have the heart posture that you say, man, if my opinion or thought is different from God's word, I'm just gonna change my opinion or thought to match God's word. Is that your heart? Are you willing to let this word change and transform your life? We are called to be sanctified by the truth. So if I can, I can sum up maybe everything that we've talked about so far and all this in John 17. Essentially, Jesus is the king that is and was glorified. Jesus is the priest who intercedes for his people. And he's also the prophet who speaks the truth over his flock. That's what Jesus does. And that's what he prays for. But this prayer for us It's not a prayer for spiritual protection and sanctification as we sit on a beanbag chair eating Cheetos, right? That's not not how this passage ends. Verse 18 says something a little different. It says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Which means when Jesus prays, he cares deeply that we are spiritually protected and sanctified by the truth as we are sent into this world. Now, were there times for these disciples, these 11, to come together and bask in the glory of God? Absolutely. But there was also times for them to go out into the world, to go and spread the good news of the gospel and the glory of Christ. But Jesus knew that they would face opposition in this world. They would face pushback. But in the midst of the opposition and the pushback, Jesus doesn't want them taken out of the world. It's not like when the hard things come, it's like, all right, let's just take them out quick. Because what's verse 15 says, not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one as they are in the world. So essentially, as they face the opposition, Jesus just continues to give them everything that they need to continue to fight the good fight, which when I say everything they need, primarily I mean God's word and his Holy Spirit. In World War II, uh, the Americans decided to press forward and to send troops overseas to take back Fortress Europe, which was essentially all the portions of Europe that had been overtaken by Nazi Germany. And there were a lot of troops and regiments that were sent overseas, but probably the most famous and popular of all the troops 
is that of Easy Company, led by Lieutenant Richard Winters, who trained his troops rigorously. And then on D-Day, as America stormed the beaches of Normandy, Winters and his Easy Company, their paratrooper regiment was dropped behind enemy lines. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Easy Company, the reason that they were immortalized in the history books uh, was primarily because of their loyalty to one another and their bravery in battle. So loyalty to one another. I mean, you've got men from all over the United States with very different backgrounds and a lot of differences, but none of that mattered over there. All the insignificant differences were laid aside because they were locking arms, looking out for one another, knowing, hey, our job here is to keep one another alive as we press forward the mission ahead of us, specifically the mission of like freeing the captives, those who've been taken captive by Nazi Germany. So there was an intense loyalty for one another as they were fighting for their lives and fighting for the mission ahead of them. But again, not only their loyalty, but their bravery. When things got hard, they didn't ask to be taken out of the fight. They pressed forward. And America continued to send them the weapons, the food, and the resources they needed to fight the good fight, but they never took them out until it was done. And so they stayed in the fight and every day continued to take enemy territory. And church, my question this morning is, could you imagine if we took on a mindset like that, that we saw the massive mission that is in front of us, the, the mission of telling the world about what Jesus has done for us, that we would see that as so important that everything else seems so insignificant, that we look to one another and say, all right, let's do this thing together, lock arms in loyalty and press forward with the mission that's in front of us, that we wouldn't hunker down scared of the world or the hard things that might be ahead of us, but instead we would press forward in confidence and courage, knowing that Christ has already won the war. So we look forward knowing that Jesus is going to prepare us with and give us whatever we need in this life, primarily, again, his word and his spirit. And so, Candeo, you got to understand, when we come together on a Sunday morning, the purpose of this gathering is not to entertain an audience. The purpose of this gathering is to mobilize an army. We don't spend our life avoiding the world and avoiding hardship. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We should long for heaven. Absolutely, Christian. I hope Jesus comes back before this service ends. But he hasn't come back yet. And so until he comes back, what do we do? We keep pressing forward. We press forward with the task that's ahead of us. Easy Company knew their task. What's our task, Christian? Acts 20, 24 tells us. I love this verse. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. There's your task. Testify to the good news of God's grace, of what Jesus has done for you. Glorify Christ in this life. How do we complete that task? How do we run the race? Well, it's with our eyes fixed on the word of God. While we're on our knees, independence of the Holy Spirit in prayer, but also with our heart fully engaged with the world around us. 
Christian, we are aliens, foreigners, and sojourners in this world. We are passing through on our way to home, which is heaven. But while we are on earth, let's pray like Jesus prayed. Let's pray for ourselves and one another that we would be protected spiritually in this lifetime and that we would be sanctified by the truth. And all the while with a mindset that we know we are sent people. So what I actually want to do this morning is maybe something a little different. Uh, I actually want to do that this morning. I want to, I want to pray for one another this morning. And so what I'm going to have you do uh, here in a minute or so is I'm going to have you partner up. Um, so real small groups, can be family, someone you know, um, can be groups of three if you want. I'll give you an out. Uh, if you'd rather just pray by yourself or you're like, dude, I, don't, I just, this is my first time here. Uh, just hang out. It's totally fine. But we're going to pray. Okay, a couple, a couple encouragements. I'd encourage you to keep your, your prayers short, clear, and concise, and pray multiple times with the person you're praying with. And what I want you to pray is this. I want you to pray thanking Jesus for what he's done. We're gonna give glory by thanking him for what he's done. So essentially all those first five verses, thank Jesus for what he's done. But then I want you to move into praying for spiritual protection in your own life and for you to be sanctified. Now, you don't need to sit and share your prayer request before you pray. Just pray. Pray those things. Pray your requests out loud. Say, Father, I, I pray that you would protect me from this thing in this life or that you would sanctify me and grow me in this way. So go back and forth, uh, praying with one another. But church, we're gonna do this. We're gonna pray John 17 together as a church family. And then a little bit, the band's gonna come back up and help us continue in worship through song. So church, let's pray together. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.